Hey, question two from last week. Are we praying? Are we praying at all? Talked about prayer last week. And are we praying grown-up prayers? When we think of each other, are we praying more than God bless so-and-so, but are we praying about sort of the deep things Paul prayed for his friends in Colossae about? And as we start in the text, let me pray here. Father, uh, Lord God, we just acknowledge your King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, that opening song reminds me that a day, perhaps not far from now, we will all stand gloriously in your presence and we will gather with the uncountable hosts of heaven who are worshiping you face to face, throwing their crowns at your feet and worshiping the Lamb of God who's taken away the sins of the world. Father, we thank you for that certain and sure promise. And Father, would, would you by your Spirit enable us to see, uh, if not into heaven this morning, a little bit more of heaven's Savior? Father, we know that to see, to behold your Son is life, and we want more life, and ask that you'd glorify yourself by helping us see Jesus more fully and more clearly now, in his name, amen. You know, for better or worse, Kansas is associated with the story and the movie, The Wizard of Oz. We were in England, and I met a guy from Canada, and the first thing he says to me is, how is Toto? I've never met him. I'm in another part of the world. He's from another part of the world, but I'm from Kansas. And so that's what I get, Toto, etc. You know the story, though. Uh, Dorothy, little Dorothy, she lives in her... It's got to be dull and boring, right? Because it's her black and white Kansas farm with her aunt and uncle until the twister comes along. And in that tornado, her house is taken up and thrown into the full, vibrant, colorful land of Oz. And she starts a series of adventures there. And all the while, every adventure is meant to get her home. Remember, towards the end of the film and the story, she destroys the wicked witch. And so she returns to the wonderful wizard who's promised her if she'll do that thing, destroy the witch, uh, he will send her home. But of course, the trouble is, she gets back to the wizard and she finds out he's a fraud. He has absolutely no power to send her home. But fortunately, Glenda the Good Witch is there. And you remember what she says. You know, by the way, those ruby red slippers that have been on your feet the whole time, they actually have the power to take you home. And all you have to do is click your heels three times and repeat, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. So for her, she thought that the wizard had something that would get her home, that would meet her needs. And he really didn't. But she didn't know that what she possessed all the time she was there was all the power she needed to make her dreams come true and to get safely home. The ruby red slippers there on her feet the whole time. You know, for Christians, uh, we face all kinds of challenges. Some bigger, some small uh, trials and suffering, some that endure for a moment, some that endure for a long time. And often in life, we find ourselves looking for some version of those slippers or perhaps a wizard, someone, something that can kind of take care of those struggles I'm facing, someone or something that can get me safely home, someone or something that's the answer to my challenges, my suffering, my need of the moment. 
And Paul in Colossians 1 is addressing Christians who have been tempted to believe some lies that having something or someone other than Christ is actually going to be the solution to their problem. And so in this section that will be in Colossians 1 this morning, Paul just wants to put a spotlight on the person and work of Christ. And he'll take that, the the facts of the value of Jesus in His person and what He's done, and then he's going to take that later and show them that if this is true of Jesus, if this is who He is and if this is what He's done, then you don't need anything else. And for us today, we don't need anyone or anything else ultimately in the trials we face, the struggles, the questions of life, our desires to get someplace or another or become something or another. We don't need anything or anyone else but Christ. Everything else, they're they're sham wizards. They're empty promises. If we've got Christ, we've got everything we need for life and godliness. And that's what Paul wants the Colossians to know. And that's what God wants you and I to know here as well. Now let me... uh, give a brief caveat here just on the front end. This was probably a hymn in the early church, uh, part of the text that we're in this morning that focuses very specifically on Jesus. And this is a passage that I wish I had greater creative powers to sort of illuminate. You know, if you teach the Bible, it's intimidating because it's God's Word, it's the truth, and you want to do it justice. Well, when you get to a passage like this, where it focuses so specifically and fully on the person of Christ, guys, I just sort of lay down and say, Lord, I'm not going to be able to get there. I'm not going to be able to do Jesus justice. But we'll look at the text, and we'll use actually quite a few other verses to try and shed light on what is God saying is true of Jesus, specifically. That's where we'll hang our hat. Paul's also in this passage going to say briefly what was true of us, So that he can go back and say, this is who Jesus is, this is what was true of you, and this is what Jesus' work on your behalf has done. That's that's how we'll work through this this morning. So if you remember in verses 13 and 14, Paul had told the Colossians why they had every reason in the world to be thankful, because they'd been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom, in Jesus, they had redemption and the forgiveness of their sins. To the text this morning, this is Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. So Paul continues, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, these would be angelic powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That, or for the purpose, that in everything He might be preeminent for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross 
And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Almost inevitably, if you run into heresy, anything short of orthodox doctrine or teaching, it always ends up at Christology, at what we say is true or is not true of the person or the work of Jesus Christ. We want to be careful about what we say we believe because ultimately it gets down to who is Jesus and what has He done. And heresy always ends up there. So the Colossians had a challenge as to what constituted real spiritual health and acquisition. And they've got people telling them that Jesus is good and Jesus saves, but somehow you need these other entities. You need angels and you need harsh treatment of the body for you to really get someplace spiritually. The impact of that was it took their eyes off of Christ, off of who He was and what He did for them. So Paul wants to zero everything back in on Christ and then extrapolate from there. We want to be so careful about what we say we believe and what we tell others we believe because at the end of the day, it ends up at the feet of Jesus. Does it affirm what the Bible says is true of Jesus? Does it affirm what the Bible says Jesus accomplished on our behalf? The person and the work of Jesus. So, verse 15, we're just going to work through this in the categories Paul gives us. Verse 15, Paul starts on this focus on Christ, the person of Christ, by saying he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you hear that and think uh, Jesus is like a picture of God but not the substance, and we, that would be short of what Paul's saying. Paul's saying to see Jesus is to see God. He, he's not some subsidiary image. He is both image and substance. So if you've seen Jesus, Paul says, you have seen God. Think of Jesus talking to Philip in John 14 when Philip had said to them that last night, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough. And Jesus replied and said to him, Philip, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Paul reiterates that same point here. To see Jesus is to see Yahweh. There's something else about this that I think in our time and day and and place in life, it's easy sometimes to not understand the gravity with which Paul or a Jewish apostle may be speaking. Remember that idolatry was absolutely anathema to the Jews. There is one God, Yahweh. You make no idols. You make no images to worship. So for a Jewish apostle to say, this person Jesus is the image of God, if that person Jesus isn't God, it's idolatry. I think it's fashionable in our time and age to talk about God's, maybe in a way that the Jews would have been less than they would have understand. Paul's saying, Jesus is Yahweh. 
Remember, he has a significant Jewish audience in this letter. There's a significant number of Jews as well as Gentiles at this church in Colossae. So, Jesus isn't just mere image. He's also substance. He is God in the flesh. Nothing less. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says it this way, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the radiance of the glory. If you looked at the sun, where does the sun end and the sunlight begin? It's it's kind of all connected, isn't it? The light comes from the sun itself. Where does the light begin and the sun end? It's probably impossible to cut those. Well, that's the thought here. If I see a candle and I see the light, that's as if I'm seeing Jesus and God. Jesus is, some versions say, the effulgence. A great old word. I think King James might use that one. Uh, The radiance of God's glory. If you've seen God's glory, you've seen Jesus. That continues also there in verse 3, the exact imprint of His nature. So this would be Again, in the Roman world, if you had a ring on your finger, a signet ring, that was your name or your mark. If you pressed that into wax and took it off, there was absolutely no doubt that that mark in the wax was from that person, their ring. Well, Hebrews says, Jesus, it's as if God stamped Himself in humanity and said, there I am. It's exact. There's no variation there whatsoever. And last, 2 Corinthians 4.4, there again, Paul said Christ is the image of God. So Paul says, if you've seen Jesus, you have seen God. You've seen Israel's Yahweh. Go down to verse 19, and he says there again, in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Christ the fullness of deity or God was pleased to dwell. You'll see this again in Colossians 2, verse 9. In Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Again, Jesus' claim and Paul's affirmation is Jesus is divine, fully. Fully God. Nothing short of that. If you look at verse 17, there's another way to affirm that, and it's this. Paul said there, He, Jesus, is Before all things, there's only one thing in the universe that has no beginning, and that's God. If Jesus is before all things, He doesn't have a beginning. This would be consistent with John 1.1. In the beginning, that is when time began, was the Word. The, The Word already was. In the beginning was the Word. Paul says of Jesus, He's before all things. He's eternally existent. This is only true of God, of deity itself. Nothing short of that. You know, the early church struggled with this quite a bit. And it's what all the early creeds are about. Is Jesus a man? Is Jesus God? Is He a man who became God for a while? Uh, Was He God on earth uh, in some limited fashion? And so the early church grappled with this. And so when the early church got together, they developed creeds basically to develop what we say now is orthodoxy. It's what we recognize as the truth primarily about the person or work of Jesus. So the Nicene Creed from 325 summarized it this way. 
We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, does it? That's Jesus. Paul's affirming in them, that's who Jesus is. One substance with the Father. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. If this was all Paul said in this passage, that'd be enough. So to people who face challenges in life, the Colossians did and we do, and we wonder where do we go for help or restoration, this would be enough. If you have Jesus, Paul says, you have God. Very God of very gods. Jesus is it. Paul continues though, he just keeps ladling it on. He just keeps laying down Jesus' descriptions here. In verse 16 he says also, He is the Creator. By Him all things were created. And then he's careful to add, in heaven the realm you and I don't live, in heaven and on earth, things that are visible, Jesus created, and things that are invisible. And then he also adds thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. Those are angelic powers. And remember for this group, they're saying that angels can help you spiritually ascend. Angels can help you spiritually ascend. And Paul says, well, actually that's a problem because angels would be a step down from what you already have. If you go to an angel for help to get to God, you've actually taken a second seat in the bus. Because if you've got Christ, you've got God Himself. If you think an angel can help, you've actually digressed away from your ultimate source of help. We'll look at more of this later, but friends, if we look to uh, crystals or saints or angels or people, no matter how holy we think they are for help, we're looking in the wrong direction. If we've got Christ, we've got God Himself, the fullness of God in Him, you can't get any more of God. You don't need any more help. That's who we've got in Christ. He's the Creator. John 1 verse 3 says the same thing. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. No mistake, Jesus is God. Sovereign God. God of gods. He's the God that spoke the universe into existence. Hebrews 1 verse 2 says much the same. Of the Son through whom also the Father created the world. Again, for a Jewish audience, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Paul's saying Yahweh, Elohim of Genesis 1.1, is the same as Jesus. This is earth-shaking. This should rattle their cages and ours. That if we think of Jesus in any lesser terms, we're not getting who Jesus is. Or who we've come to when we ask for a Savior and salvation. We've come to the very God of very gods. To Elohim and to Yahweh of Genesis. So He's the Creator, Paul says. 
He's God Himself, same as Yahweh. He created the heavens and the earth. He also says He's the sustainer. Verse 17, He sustains all things. In Him all things hold together. This is interesting. Hebrews 1 elaborates on this again this way. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. You know, according to Paul and to Hebrews, if Jesus wasn't actively at work right now as sustainer, you and I, we wouldn't exist. We wouldn't draw another breath. The universe wouldn't exist. It's sustained. It's held together by the very power of Jesus Himself. You know, science is searching madly for something called dark matter. In fact, let me read to you briefly from Wikipedia about this. Dark matter, there's a problem with the universe in this sense, as we observe it. Uh, Newtonian physics and gravity, gravity is called a weak force. And yet gravity exerts pulls, you know, body against body exerts a pull. And so we stay to the earth because the earth's mass pulls us to it. But scientists know, sort of, this is all semi-speculative, but we look at the available measurable mass stuff in the universe we can see. And then we apply Newton's physics and variations on that theme, and we come to this conclusion. The universe as we see it should actually be expanding far faster than it is. It should be flying apart. It should literally be spinning apart. But it's not. Scientists know there's a force in the universe today that's holding the universe together and we don't know what to call it. So we call it dark matter. So this is what Wikipedia, this is their introduction on dark matter. In astronomy and cosmology, dark matter is a type of matter hypothesized. We infer it. We don't know it's there. Hypothesized to account for a large part of the total mass in the universe. Dark matter cannot be seen directly with telescopes. Evidently, it neither emits nor absorbs light or other electromagnetic radiation at any significant level. This means you cannot see it. With any scientific observation and instrumentation we have, we cannot find this. We cannot measure it. We imply that it exists based on what we see otherwise. This concludes dark matter is estimated to constitute 84.5% of the total matter in the universe. So I find this intriguing. And by the way, I'm not, even, I'm not belittling science. Go science. I'm for science, right? Whatever. That's, this is good. But if you said there's an invisible force holding the universe together, and I read my Bible, I can say at some level, I, I know what that force is. Paul says it's Jesus is sustaining the universe by His will. Hebrews 1 says the same thing. Now, if scientists find something that they can measure and say that's the stuff we were talking about, I have no problem with that. It still won't change this. Paul says it's Jesus that is sustaining the universe today. That it doesn't spin apart, that your body and mine stays together because Jesus is actively sustaining us today. And if he's doing that for the physical, you know, the universe, as far as we can see, it's immeasurable to us. If Jesus is sustaining the universe whose depths and ends we can't measure, 
Do you think he can sustain your life and mine? I'll bet he can. He's the sustainer of the universe. He's holding all things together by the word of his power. Hebrews 1 verse 3. Paul also says he's first and he's preeminent. Verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. If you hear that Jesus is the firstborn, it sounds as if he has a beginning, doesn't it? And that's not what Paul's trying to say. In fact, let me just read from Hebrews 1 verse 2. Speaking of the Son, of the Son whom He, God the Father, appointed the heir of all things. In the world in which Paul lived, if you were the firstborn, that was significant because that means you're the key heir. You're the Father's primary heir. You get the authority. You get most of the stuff. Paul is saying of Jesus, He is the key heir of God the Father. He gets the stuff. This means if you know Jesus, you get Jesus' stuff. If He's the firstborn, He's the heir of all things, you share in His inheritance. You share in His wealth. All things. He is the Father's heir. He's the first. So again, you know there's the whole... There's a theology that says that uh, we've got to get uh, more and more stuff, uh, green stuff, uh, house stuff, car stuff, appliance stuff, that that represents God's wealth. You know, at some level, it's it's laughable. Uh, Historically, Christians throughout the ages have, have been persecuted and martyred with nothing. You read Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, no homes, you know, caves, living in caves. Did they miss the stuff God meant for them? We've got all the stuff. Guys, we've got more than we'll ever use. We just don't lay our hands on most of it right now. We've got lots of stuff here. We're wealthy. All of us in this room, we're wealthy by historic standards, by any standard. We've got lots of stuff. But the stuff that matters at the end of the day, it's not our houses, it's not our homes, it's not our cars. They're all going to burn up when this world ends. But we've got an eternal inheritance with the heir of all things, with Jesus. That's what matters. So Paul's telling them again, if Jesus is the firstborn, if He's the heir of all things, if you have Jesus, you have all things. You can't get more. In Christ, you've already got that. He is preeminent. And I love this. This means God the Father wants Jesus to be the first thing we see in heaven. And He wants Jesus eternally to occupy the spotlight so that in eternity future, Jesus is the thought that comes to us first. Jesus is the one we think of first. Jesus is the is the language that comes out of our mouth. He is preeminent. He is to have first place in eternity before the Father, Paul says. So Jesus is firstborn. He's the heir of all things. And He ultimately takes first place in all things. Ephesians 1, verse 10 reiterates this and so does Philippians 2, verses 9-11. through I won't read those now. If we're in fellowship with Christ, we're co-heirs with Christ, and that means we have everything. You can't get any more than you have. 
Paul says in verse 20 that Jesus is also a Savior. He says, through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. Jesus is the means. And friends, He really is the only means to be reconciled with a holy God. It's uh, popular if, if you read the Barna surveys, you'll see all kinds of people in the United States and the West claim to be Christians, but believe that there's a variety of paths to God. And that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying he is the Savior. He is the only Savior. If we're going to be reconciled to a holy, righteous God, it's going to be through Christ or it's not going to be at all. Jesus, Paul says, is our Savior. John 1.29, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the only efficient sin bearer. If you go to Jesus for forgiveness of sins, it's absolute and it's total. He's a Savior. If you go to any place else, you have no such promise and no such hope. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and man. And that's the man, Christ Jesus, who it says also, who gave Himself a ransom for all. Again, Colossians 2, they want angels to mediate for them. Paul here says, in Timothy, Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. You can't find another. The Father recognizes no other mediator. What good is it if you find someone who says, I can mediate your relationship with the Father, and the Father says, I don't know them. They have no standing in my court. A mediator has to be recognized on both sides. God the Father recognized one mediator, one mediator only. That's Jesus. He is the only Savior. He's also, Paul says at verse 18, He's the head, the head of the body, the church. That's reiterated in Ephesians 4.15, we're to grow up in every way to Him who is the head. Ephesians 5.23, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and Himself its Savior. You know, many of us, perhaps most of us, struggle with significance in life, even as Christians, which is tragic. If we know that we have Christ, we have everything, one. But also, if Christ is the head of the body, the church, then that means Jesus has sovereignly given you a place in His body to serve and to be productive and to honor Him. And Paul says we should grow up towards the head. We should take our cues from Jesus. And if God has made you an ear or an eye or a foot or a hand or an internal organ that no one sees but needs service or mercy or whatever it is, see, we can't gain any more status. But often, even as Christians, we say to ourselves, if I was important like that person, if I had that kind of gift or that kind of ability, but no, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. That means He's our individual as well as our corporate head. And that means we serve in the body exactly where and how he wants us to. That's significance. I can't remember who said this, and my quote will be off a little bit. I think it was Schaefer, Francis Schaefer. Uh, 
for a person to know who they are and to do what God has given them to do, has made them to do, is the creature glorified. You can't, it can't get any better than to know who God's made you and be who God's made you. And Jesus is the head of the church. That means He's every one of our head. We take our cues from Him. And corporately, He leads His body, the church. So Paul goes from one thing to another, to another, to another, to show the Colossians, and you and I today, Jesus is everything worth having. And if we have Christ, we have the sum of all things. He's God, He's Creator, He's Sustainer, He's First, He's Preeminent, He's Savior. We've got everything we need in Christ. God wants us to know. To have Jesus is to have God Himself, the One who created us, sustains us, the ultimate heir of all things, the only God and only Savior. He's the One who calls us by name, gifts us, and places us in His body, the church. You can't get a better friend, a more important relationship, a surer salvation, or a deeper life than is to be found in Christ. We have Christ, Paul says. We've got it all. We've got it all. If you go to verse 21, Paul's going to contrast all the glories that are true of Jesus with us. So you look at Jesus and this is what you see. The glory of God the Father. Deity itself, Yahweh. Creator, sustainer. All these good things. And then Paul says, and and this is what you were. By the way, here's Jesus. Here's who He is. And this is who you were. You once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So the glories of Christ, Paul says, and, and now this is you. Hostile, alienated, doing evil deeds. You know, I doubt if many of us would have said when we came to Christ, I was doing evil deeds. Didn't most of us say something like, I'm a pretty good person, but I've made some mistakes. Paul sort of lays this out. He takes all that away. He says, no, this was your setting. This was your situation. Alienated from God. This means estranged and shut out with no possibility of fellowship with God. If God is life, and He is, When we're estranged, we have no hope of anything that qualitatively we can call life. We're estranged from God and all God's goodness. Paul goes further, though. He says that we were hostile to God. Very few people would tell you they're hostile to God. But Paul says of the Colossians, and God says to us today, we were hostile to God. Now, This means hateful to God. This means odious to God. This would be as if we came into God's holy room and God had to cover His nose because of our smell, our unholy smell to Him. Hostile. You know, all of us apart from Christ, we have a a pride in our fallenness that's absolutely hostile to God. We don't want God to be God. We're hostile to God. And he also says, doing evil, bad things. Things that absolutely separate us from God. They don't bring us closer. They alienate us. And this is true, by the way, of religious endeavors as well. You know, the world is filled and and has been always with religious people who are doing what Paul calls evil deeds. Their religious deeds are evil because they're alienated and hostile to God. 
because it doesn't represent God's means of salvation. It's alienated. They're hostile from God. So, you get all of Christ's glory, who He is, and then Paul says, now this is you. Alienated, hostile, odious to God, absolutely separated, no hope. That's so Paul can get to verse 22. So Jesus is, He is, you were, and now He has. Jesus has. This is the work of Christ. Verse 22, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh. Christ has reconciled us. He's brought us back into favor with God. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. You know, even as Christians, when we sin, we feel a sense of guilt or shame. You know, I know I've done the wrong thing. And I feel bad about it. And that's appropriate the Holy Spirit usually works that way to say, hey, something's out of whack. You know, if my body pains me, it's a way of saying, something's wrong. You need to take care of this. If I feel guilt, God may be saying, hey, you know, what you said back there, what you did, what you're doing right now, He's pricking my conscience. So I've got to come back to Him. But I'm never less than reconciled to God. I may in a moment find myself with less fellowship with the Father or the Son than I'd like. I may grieve the Holy Spirit. I may quench the Holy Spirit. Paul says I can do that. And I'm not going to enjoy God's peace and joy in those moments the way I could otherwise. But I'm never less than reconciled to God. When Paul says that in Christ we're presented holy and blameless and above reproach, if God is holy and perfect, and He is, if we can stand before Him blameless and above reproach, guys, that means God has absolutely nothing against us. We are absolutely holy in Christ, set apart to the Father. When God the Father looks at us through His Son, He sees no guilt, no shame, no defect. There's nothing that keeps us apart from Him. The fact that Jesus presents us holy and blameless before, the holy God means we are fully received. Our sins are absolutely covered by Christ's atoning blood. We are absolutely reconciled. There's no more work for us to do. We can't get holier in this sense than we are. We can't get more blameless than we already are. Because in Christ, we're holy and blameless. By Christ's doing. That's what Jesus has done for us. You know, Christians, we often struggle with the motivation adequate for living life well in a godly way. It's never that I incur greater favor with God. And I think for most Christians, I think this is where we live. If I was more important, if I was better looking, if I made more money, if I was more popular, if I had greater social standing, I'd feel better about myself. But you see, this cuts all that away. If we've got God's view, He's holy and He's perfect. God's view of us is we're blameless. We're holy. We're beloved as much and as fully as Christ is right now. If we can see the Father's approbation, favor, and acceptance of us, then we don't need to worry about anyone else's. We don't need to worry about our standing before others. That's what we have. We often don't recognize it. Or we trade this away for the porridge that we can get in this world of, of ways that we can feel better about ourselves 
or hope other people find us in higher favor. But if God is the ultimate judge, and He is, this is where all that ends. This is what Christ has done, past tense, for you and I. Reconciled us. Presented us holy, spotless, blameless before God the Father. That's the work of Christ. Nothing short of that. If you have Christ, you're standing before the Father is perfect. It cannot be improved upon. Hebrews 10.14 says it this way, By a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This sounds contradictory. In life and in time, we're being made more holy practically. God is at work sanctifying us. But it's based on the once for all offering Jesus made for us that has fully reconciled us to the Father. So God's will is being worked out in us day by day based on the once for all sin covering we have through Christ in His atoning sacrifice on the cross. This is an anonymous quote. It goes like this, A Christless cross no refuge were for me. A crossless Christ no Savior would He be. But O Christ crucified, I rest in Thee. That's what we're called to. Christ crucified, I rest in Thee. I'm covered. I'm reconciled. I'm good to go. Now, Paul gives a caveat here at the end. Verse 23. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel that you heard. He says, This is true if you continue. And you'll see similar wording in the letter to the Hebrews. There are several warning passages. The danger of heresy, the danger of seeing Christ as less than He is or His work as less full than it was is that our hope is removed from Christ and the Gospel. And we end up looking for impotent wizards who can save us and get us home. And we look for alternative Christs in alternative Gospels. And so Paul tells them, guys, your only hope lies in this Christ, not some lesser version. And in this work, not some half-hearted atonement. So it's a reminder to them, because they have people advocating basically a different view of the Gospel, Paul says, stick with the faith you have in this Jesus and in this atoning work. Don't trust in. Don't bother looking for some other version or option. They don't exist. So he says, if you continue, it's faith in this Jesus that saves. Faith in other versions of Jesus don't save. Faith in other Gospels and gods don't save. And faith, by the way, in faith does not save. Faith in faith does not save. Christ, the person of Christ, is the object of our faith. Jesus saves us. And that salvation is laid hold of through faith. So Paul says, stay in Christ. The gospel you heard, the Jesus preached to you, is the real thing. Don't settle for something less because something less won't save. You'll end up disappointed. In Christ, or a variation of that phrase is used 13 times, in this letter. And if you search for it to do a search in Ephesians, you'll see multiple times there as well. Paul wants them to know in Christ you have all these riches and this sure and certain salvation. 
If we know who Jesus is, if we know what He did, we'll have done with lesser gods and other inadequate options in facing life. Jesus is the Son of Righteousness. We don't need to settle for lesser stars. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. We don't need to settle for lesser versions of God. Jesus is Creator. He can recreate us in God's perfect image. Jesus is the Sustainer. He can and does sustain you and I in anything in this life we face. Jesus is the first in glory and stature, and to know Him is to share in His divine inheritance. He's the only Savior. He's the one that presents us ultimately and fully holy and blameless before His God and our God and Father. He's the head of the church. Jesus can show you where He wants you and what He wants you doing. That's what He does. We serve at His pleasure. God means each need, every trial, every moment of suffering in our life to display the absolute sufficiency of knowing and having Jesus Christ. Jesus will show you the way home in any and every situation, you and I have need of Christ only. Father, thank You for giving us uh, in Jesus the gift above all gifts. Lord, would You help us have do with lesser versions of Christ and of lesser Gospels? God, would You direct our attention to the spotlight You've put on Your Son Would You help us to appreciate who He is and what He's done for us? Would You help us to value Him above all things? Lord, would You help us to have Your estimation of Your Son? Would You help us to worship Him fully throughout this life and be ready to joyfully, Lord, with the saints and the angels already in heaven, bow at His throne, praising His name forever. Thank You for Your Son. In His name, Amen.